again to 39 Talks on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I am your instructor, David O'Gray, Master of Arts in Theology. And we begin in Nomine Pacis et Filio, Espiritu Sancti. In this talk, I will be highlighting Article 1, Chapter 1, Section 2, called The Profession of Faith. To supplement your own reading of this chapter, I will be briefly explaining what the Nicene Constitutional Creed is, how it's structured, how the profession of faith fits within the body of the liturgy, and I'll also be speaking on God as Father and the revelation of God as Holy Trinity. This talk works out of paragraphs numbered 185 through 421 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. These paragraphs also treat the theology of the original sin. But in this series of talks, I will address the original sin um, in my forthcoming talk on the sacrament of baptism. So keep that section in your pocket for now, and we'll address it later. In society, organizations, schools, corporations, what typically in their formative stages create some sort of mission statement that succinctly explains who they are and what they believe. Newly formed governments tend to create declarations of rights or constitutions based upon the precepts that many of them have agreed to be the basic tenets to contribute to the common good of society. Faith-based organizations have, on the other hand, sought to express their core beliefs through things that are called professions of faith or creeds, as they're called from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. The creeds pronounced at the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD are not the earliest instances of declarative statements by the fathers of the church about the nature, personhood, life, and works of the triune Godhead, nor do these creeds express all that we Catholics dogmatically believe, but having been drawn out of the authority of the first two ecumenical councils of the church, these creeds have been able to express the common language of the universal church, both East and West, to succinctly express what God has revealed to us about himself, what it is that makes us who we are, and why we respond to God as we do. For just a little historical background, the Creed of Nicaea ended with the phrase, and in the Holy Spirit. And then the First Council of Constantinople borrowed from the Creed first recited by Ephenasius of Salamis in his 374 AD Ancharitis to omit nothing from the Creed of Nicaea, but to add more to the second person of the Holy Trinity. For example, adding the phrases, according to the scriptures, and is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory 
whose kingdom there will be no end. Most especially, the new thing that was added to the creed was about the life and work of the Holy Spirit. In this way, the creed is divided into three sections. And each section follows the same pattern in which they, they share the revelation about three things concerning the person of the Holy Trinity. That is, each section of the creed explains first, the divine person's nature. Second, their personhood. Third, their life and works. In the following two talks on Jesus, God the Son, and on God the Holy Spirit, we will also be following a creed using this same construct. In the instant case, regarding the Eternal Father, the creed begins with the first thing we need to know about God the Father. In fact, this point of revelation is the same thing that the Jews knew about God the Father from the first paragraph of the creed or synthesis of the, their faith called the Shema, which can be found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. In our creed, it is expressed in this way, saying, We believe in one God. This truly is a fundamental expression of our faith and belief in the nature of God, that he is neither subordinate or divided. He is one. Because God is one and we are made in his image and likeness, we can know for certain that we're being called into unity with him and why we can boldly confess our belief in there being one faith, one Lord, one baptism for all. That this one God is rightly called Father Almighty, but speaks of his eternal primacy above all of his household and all of his created work to bring life to where there was none and to bring life to where we see none, to the visible and the invisible. When Jesus comes and he begins speaking of God as his personal father and instructs us to also call his father our father and to pray to him saying our father in heaven holy is your name it should have been clear to his audiences that this was a new thing that jesus was bringing he was bringing not just the father to us but rather through the adoption covenant he was bringing his personal father to us introducing us to his father as our father through his Son, who is like us in every way but sin, when we are in him, we too have his personal Father as our personal Father. For in him we heard nothing that the Father did not give him to say, and we saw no work that the Father did not give him to do. And through himself, Jesus was drawing us into deep relationship with our Father. I know 
That may seem like a strange way for a family relationship to begin. Why couldn't we just meet our father in person? Why did he have to send his son to intercede as a mediator? Well, you have to consider that our relationship with our father had been estranged because of where we are and where he is. According to our nature, our physicality, we are just very distant from each other. And only the Son who had come in the flesh could meet us where we are and communicate with us in a way that we might understand. Although our Father is very different from us, His beloved and only begotten Son, Jesus, is like us in every way but sin. Therefore, through Him, our Father had a way to appeal to us and a way to adopt us, not only legally, but in blood, through His Son's sacrifice on the cross. This divine father and son relationship is something that we should all be able to understand on just a basic human level. For example, I know for a fact from family members who sometimes remark that I look just like my father or from certain tendencies that I have, my siblings might remark, you're just like dad. Or I know when I look at my daughter, Darielle, I see myself just a female, much prettier version. So I get what it means to see one person in another. Yet for Philip, it didn't click at first. From the text of John chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, they state that Philip said to him, Master, show us the Father and that would be enough for us. Jesus said to him in reply, Have I been with you for so long a time, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, shows the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else. Believe because of the works themselves. For the Jews, their understanding of God as Father simply meant that he was the uncreated, the first, the transcendent, the author and authority, the creator and holder of all. Paragraph 238 of the Catholic Catechism explains, that God was thought to be the Father because of the covenant and the gift of the law to Israel, the firstborn son. God is also thought to be Father in a parental sense. He is the Father of the King of Israel and the Father of the poor, the orphaned, and the widowed. Yet, the idea that the father has a personal son who is like him in every way, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, is a theology that cannot be reconciled with the 
limits that the Jews have placed upon their revelation of God. In the Christian context of the divine economy, we find that implied in the term father is the reality of there being a we, a language that we first heard at man's creation when it was spoken, let us make man in our image. Moreover, is implied we because a father has to have children or something he has authored. Otherwise, he's not truly a father. One cannot be a father of no one or nothing. Implied in the term son is the idea that he has a father, a author, a source of his being. Implied in the term advocate, which Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, is the idea that he was sent on behalf of the person whom he is advocating for. Also implied in these three terms together is that none of them are the same as each other. As paragraphs 252 through 255 states, the word substance, nature, or essence are the closest words we have to communicate how it is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are truly equal in divinity, yet being equal in nature, they are truly distinct persons and they also have distinct relationship. The Council of Toledo in 675 AD stated it in this way, The Father is that which the Son is, the Son that which the Father is, the Father and the Son that which the Holy Spirit is. That is, they truly do share just one nature. All analogies about the Holy Trinity fall apart eventually. But beg me a moment here to try to make one. <laughs> to explain the one nature to try and God. It would be like us looking at their DNA and see the exact same molecules. But in the son's DNA, we can see traces of the father. And in the Holy Spirit's DNA, we can see traces of the father and the son. But in the father's DNA, we cannot find traces of anyone else's DNA, but his alone. Because he is the alpha, the first. More than that. Even though the Father and Son and Holy Spirit all appear to be ontologically and anatomically identical, they truly are distinct persons who are not the other person, and their relationship with each other is unique to each, and they are not co-equal brothers, but truly Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yet, all they, they are truly distinct from each other, because they, they truly are the, the same substance, they are not divided in any substantive way. They are truly distinct from each other, but not divided from each other and are unable to be divided or at odds with each other because of their same divine substance, their same nature, their same essence. For this reason, we would not be in error to say that divine love is the name of the nature, substance, and essence of God. For 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, God is love. And it is because of this divine unity 
and love that we can rightly call them Holy Trinity because they truly are three, but they are truly one. Now, having discussed the core truths of this first section on the creed, let us turn as we close to speak about the creed in context of the liturgy of the Holy Mass. In the liturgy of the church, there are only two things that we do. We are either praying or confessing. That is, we're either praying the words of the liturgy or confessing them. And in this liturgical rhythm of praying, confessing, the creed offers the final opportunity in the second movement of the liturgy, which is the liturgy of the word, to confess our belief in the trying God. Therefore, this positioning in the liturgy of the creed gives the creed the taste of it being something of a summation of the readings and as a type of preface to the third movement, the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist. Indeed, all the confessions found in the creed sum up what God has revealed about himself and about his work to fulfill in us the desire of Eve, to be like God. Also, the creed entreating the nature of God addresses and points to the central theme of the liturgy of the mass, primarily that is, the work of deification, becoming like God. Therefore, when we confess the creed, we are confessing our belief in the divine nature of God and His work to conform us to that nature through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Eucharist. In the next talk, I'll be talking about the second part of Nicene Constantinople Creed, beginning with the profession, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Thank you for watching.